Well, good morning, New Life. That was my Eric Kitchen impersonation. Um, You can almost count on him saying that all the time. This, I got to tell you, is a little weird. After two months of tag-teaming together and uh, bringing you the word each Sunday, who is going to be there to make fun of me today? Okay. So uh, no cat calls from the audience or anything like that, but um, it is uh, wonderful um, that uh, God has enabled us to adapt to changing circumstances, to be able uh, to continue to, to shepherd his, his people here at New Life, and to uh, continue to bring the word and keep people connected. And so um, change is normal in life. It's a part of life, and uh, we are really excited about some of the changes that you guys have experienced here this morning in this new facility being spread out, Uh, but it is wonderful. I'm still getting used to people clapping and and just seeing everybody together, but uh, we are so excited. It's been a long time coming and uh, very excited about our series that we're beginning here this morning. But if anybody... um, Uh, has been out and about, you know that things are starting to get back to normal a little bit. Uh, Restaurants have opened up their indoor seating. Uh, Last night, my wife and I, we were over at uh, Blystone Farms, and they had, uh, uh, I think it was Three Rivers Bluegrass. Uh, So we were able to enjoy that outside. And to my surprise, uh, the waitstaff didn't even wear masks. And so, um, but a lot of places have have opened up. This past week, I heard that Canal Winchester uh, playgrounds are opening up. I also got emails telling me that uh, uh, movie theaters are going to be opening up, barber shops. In fact, I saw my barber for the first time in two months this past week, and I got my hair cut. You're saying, well, prior to that, what did you do? Well, my lovely wife cut my hair, and she did a really good job. So, uh, But I went back because I love rubbing shoulders uh, with my barber and all the clientele and the people who are there. You can learn a lot about Canal Winchester by hanging out with uh, the folks at a barber shop. So, um, but I also learned, and this is kind of dangerous, but I also learned that Disney World is going to be opening back up. I think July 11th, I have no idea how they're going to do it. I mean, when you think about the crowds, if anybody's been to Disney World, you know, I mean, you're packed in like sardines. Uh, But I'm sure they're going to figure out a way. And if they're doing any kind of social distancing, this might be the time to go. So when they open back up, you might be able to get on those rides a lot quicker than you have in the past Um, Speaking of rides, I think uh, two of my favorite are there at uh, Hollywood Studios. Anybody been to Hollywood Studios, formerly MGM? Um, The Tower of Terror and Rock and Roller Coaster. I love those two things. But I have a confession to make. That's not my favorite thing at Hollywood Studios. Now, this is going to make Eric cry, but um, my favorite thing at Hollywood Studios is going to see the live performance of Beauty and the Beast. I, I know, I know. 
Uh, I think I've seen it three times now, and every time I want to cry. It's like, it's so good. It is so good. And uh, the music and everything, the special effects that they do, you're in a little amphitheater and you're, you're watching it. And I, I just love it. And I know we've talked about going back again sometime, and I hope they still have the show because I think I'll go see it for like a fourth time. But, um, but anyway, uh, um, you know, you wonder, well, what in the world does that have to do with Esther? Um, well, I think in many ways uh, the title Beauty and the Beast could have been the title of the book of Esther. For in it, we not only have uh, one, but we have two beautiful bells, and we have uh, a, a prince who, though not beastly in appearance, is nevertheless a beast of a man anyway. He's more like Gaston. Right, if, you, if you're familiar with the movie the, or the play, he, Gaston is a conceited person. He's, he's obnoxious, he's conceited, he's full of pride and arrogance. And that's what you see here with the king in the book of Esther. Now, Esther is a story of good and evil. It's a story of faith and fear. And it's a story of risk and ruin. It's an amazing, amazing little book, and it's about an unlikely heroine whose courage, whose character, and whose, whose wisdom still speak volumes to us today. Now, to kind of give you a context for this, this amazing book, we have to understand that Esther is part of a much larger story that goes all the way back to Abraham and moves all the way to the present day. In many ways, the book of Esther is a story of our heritage because if the Jewish people had been destroyed back then, there would have been no Jesus. There would have been no gospel, no salvation, and no church. We wouldn't be here this morning. That's what's at stake in the book of Esther. It teaches us how to live in the world with courage and with integrity, carrying out our responsibilities to the best of our ability and trusting that God will protect us and he will provide for us as he works out his sovereign plan. Specifically, the book of Esther tells us the story of a young Jewish girl who becomes queen of Persia. And Persia was no small power at the time, as you will see in just a little bit. But it also explains how a Jewish festival called Purim came into existence. Purim came into existence because of what we read here in the book of Esther. It is a celebration of the deliverance of God's people. And it's still celebrated today. So the book as a whole, if you were to try to condense it down into, you know, what, what's the main point of the book of, of Esther, it would simply be this, that no matter how bad things appear, God is in control. He is in control and he will accomplish great things through people who are willing to risk it all for him and for the good of others. 
That's, that's, that's the bottom line for the book of Esther. And this morning, what we're going to see is that God uses uh, even the sinful actions of others to accomplish his purposes. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us to bring us to this point. Lord, it seemed like our seclusion and and being shut in, Lord, just seemed like it would last forever. And Lord, we're still not sure how things are all gonna turn out, but we know that nothing escapes your notice and that you are at work in all of these circumstances. And Lord, you in your providential care led us to this place on this day to begin the study of this particular book. And Lord, I don't think that was a coincidence. I, I think, Lord, in your perfect timing, you knew when we should study this, this book. And Lord, it begins today. And I pray that not only today, but each subsequent week, as we open up the pages of the book of Esther, that Lord, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would reveal to us things that are too wonderful to understand. Lord, help us to trust you in the midst of life's difficulties. Give us the courage that we need to live for you, trusting you to protect and to provide. And Lord, help us to risk it all for the gospel, for your glory, and for the good of one another. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So to give you the setting for the the book of Esther, it's been over a century now since the Jews of the southern kingdom were carted off into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of the Babylonian empire. And the Persian king Cyrus later defeated the Babylonians and eventually allowed uh, the Jews to return to uh, Jerusalem, back to their homeland. But many of the Jews remained in exile. Unfortunately for them, they were often looked at with with suspicion. Um, And so life was not easy for a Jew living outside of Israel. And I'd like to put up a map for you real quick just so you can kind of see. This is the extent of the Persian Empire during the time of Esther. It stretched all the way from India all the way to North Africa and even into Europe. And if you notice over there to the left uh, where it says uh, Thrace and Lydia, um, there is another nation over there. What's that one? Greece. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Um, But this is where, and you'll notice too on the map, uh, down uh, above, I think it's the Persian Gulf, just above it, north of it, you see the town of Susa. That's where our story takes place. So that's in modern-day Iran. And, um, and so, as we begin chapter 1, um, we have to understand the story is set here in the city of Susa, the king's winter palace, and it revolves around certain characters. First, there's King Ahasuerus. There is Esther. There is Mordecai, which was Esther's cousin and guardian. And then there was Haman, the king's right-hand man. And in chapter 1, there are 16 names that are given to us, people who are mentioned by name. Now, in the entire book, I want you to keep this in mind, the name Ahasuerus um, 
is mentioned 30 times. And by the way, most of you might know Ahasuerus by another name, his Greek name. Does anybody know what it is? Xerxes, okay? Xerxes I, and he reigned for about 22 years uh, over the Persia, uh, Persian media um, empire. So his name is mentioned 30 times. Mordecai, his name is mentioned 60 times. Esther is mentioned 55 times. Haman is mentioned 54 times. One name, however, is never mentioned. And by now, you all know what it is. God. God is never mentioned in the entire book of Esther. In fact, it is the only book out of 66 books in the, in the Bible that fail to mention the name of God. In fact, there's no mention of spirits or demons or heaven or hell. There's no mention of God anywhere. Now, what's interesting, though, is even though he, his name is not mentioned, you see his fingerprints everywhere. That's the thing that makes Esther such an amazing story, an amazing book, is because it's almost kind of like a Shakespearean play. You know, Shakespeare's name never appears in any of his plays, but his presence is felt everywhere. Every line, every character, every scene, every act flows from his pen. And in the same way, the book of Esther, God is not mentioned, but every character and every scene, every plot, every issue, all flows from the hand of God. His presence is overwhelming. And the book teaches us also that when we can't see God, he is at work bringing his purposes to pass. So I just want to share some uh, themes with you, some key themes. Um, these aren't the only themes in the book, but number one, godly character, especially as you look at the life of Esther. She is a godly woman, but her character is a model for all of us. Then there's divine providence. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. But it's the idea that God is working in the circumstances and the events of people's lives to bring about his plan. And then there's human responsibility, which for some people struggle with that. Because when you talk about the sovereignty of God and, and the responsibility of man, how can these two things both be true? But they are. And although God is sovereign and directs the course of human events, the story of Esther also tells us that God works through humble, obedient people. He invites us, in a sense, to write the script with him. And the last theme that I think is going to become abundantly clear is that of the foolishness of sin. Esther is a classic story um, of an evil dude who falls into his own pit, falls into his own trap. It reveals to us that those people who think they're really powerful, well, they're not as powerful as they think. They're not as smart as they think. And when you oppose God's people, which means you are opposing God, you only bring destruction upon yourself. So those are some of the themes that we're going to see. Esther is going to cause us to evaluate our own character. 
It's going to cause us to examine our own heart. It will encourage us to take a stand for what is right. And knowing that God is in control of both big and small things, um, it's my hope that we will be encouraged to step out in faith. Because we're not stepping out alone. God is going with us. And he promises that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He has given us his Holy Spirit to empower us. Scripture says that he has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but a, but a sound mind of, of power to be able to serve him. It's my hope that if you're not yet a Christian, not yet a Christ follower, that as you learn about the God who protects and loves his people, that you will be drawn to him that you will want to surrender your life to him. So I hope that in our study of Esther, that it will produce in us a longing to be more like Jesus. May we dare to risk it all for the gospel, for one another, and for the glory of God. I want to pray. Father, again, I thank you for this book. And I ask that you would be our teacher and our guide here this morning as we open its pages. Amen. So are you guys ready to jump in? Okay, because it's party time. Open up your Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 1. Give you a second to do that. Going to read the first nine verses, starting in chapter 1, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. By the way, we did put Bibles on the back table, so if you'd like uh, to grab one, you can do that. Not sure we have dipped it in hand sanitizer or anything, but... Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There was no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of the palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus decides to throw a party. 
And not just any party. A party that lasted for six months. 180 days. And he invites all the important people, all the nobles, all the princes, from all of the 127 provinces, as well as the entire army. And he had a pretty impressive army. What, what was the purpose for this particular extravaganza? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. He wanted to show off. He wanted to impress everybody with how important he is. And when the 180-day Mardi Gras was over, the king threw another party. This one was a lot shorter, though. It only lasted a week. So he has this week-long party for everybody else, and on the last day of the celebration, the king issues what I would say was a foolish command. Look at verse 10 and 10 through 12. It says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zatha, Carcass, and seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king, at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So the king, in his inebriated state, now wants to show off his wife in front of all the peoples, um, who were no doubt drunk themselves. Now, the word crown here, it's an interesting word. It literally means turban or headdress. And it was worn by um, officials, women, um, who had a high position. And oftentimes, it was, um, uh, you had a veil that was attached to the crown or to the, veil, uh, or to the turban that when they were in public, they would pull down to cover their face. Not unlike uh, what you see in some cultures today. But Vashti refused to obey the king's command. Question is, why? Why this particular command? Well, scholars believe um, that it was for one of two reasons. Um, in, in commanding her to come with the royal crown, the king was either commanding her to come unveiled, which would have been scandalous in that day, or she was to come wearing only her crown, which would have been even worse. <laughs> Whatever the meaning, Vashti understood the motive behind it. She understood that the king was intending to put her on display for all to see. And, and she said, no, I'm not going to do that. And the king was enraged. Kind of reminds me of 
Cogsworth a, a little bit telling the beast. You remember that scene where, you know, uh, the beast wants Belle to come to dinner with him and she doesn't want to come. And so Cogsworth kind of comes in and he peeks in the door and, oh, your highness, you know, your majesty. Oh, beautiful day we're having today, right? And, um, and you know, where is she? Right? Uh, well, you know, given the th- that things are the way that they are, which, you know, and, you know, it's, 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 she's not coming. What? Remember? What? She's not coming? That's what I kind of envision here, is the king is incensed. He is enraged. Can you, can you picture the eunuchs <laughs> who, who come to the king and tell the king, oh, oh, uh, uh, king, I know you wanted Fashi to come with her crown, but um, she's not coming. Yeah. Uh, that would, was probably not a pretty sight. I like what Chuck Swindoll says here about this. And uh, it, this comes from the book, Esther. Many of you guys have picked it up. Um, I'm going to omit some things here just because I know we've got the kids in here with us. But the full quotation you can read in the book, Esther, uh, A Woman of Strength and Dignity. But this is what he says. He says, in, result, in resisting this insulting act of indignity, she took a stand against the greatest power in her universe. Submission does not mean that a wife is a pawn in the carnal desires of her husband. It was never God's design that a wife submit to her husband's evil desires. In Ahasuerus's case, This took the form of desiring to display her before those who had had nothing in mind but lust. Marriage does not give a husband the right or the license to fulfill his basest fantasies. So a word of warning here. Be careful, men, of what you ask of the woman God has given you. Be certain that it doesn't assault her dignity as a person or turn a precious human being created in God's image into an object for your own carnal gratification. It's an important lesson to learn here. Now, I want you to keep in mind Vashti's disobedience as we progress through the story. So now, though, we, we have this proud, drunken, and embarrassed king who is hungry for payback. Look at verses 13 through 15. It says, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being um, Karshina, Shethar, Edmatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin the seven princes of, the per- of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, he says, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. You notice what's missing here? There is no conviction There's no remorse. There's no compassion. He simply ticked off that the queen didn't do what he told her to do. 
The king is now looking to see if there's a law in, on the books that he can take advantage of to put Vashti in her place and save face at the same time. As I was reading this, I was thinking, you know, there are a lot of marriages like that today where husbands and wives are more interested in being right than they are in being righteous. Rather than owning their sin, the things that they've done wrong, and seek forgiveness, they look for ways to stick it to their spouse. That's not the way God intended a marriage to work. So the king here, with, with no sufficient punishment on the books, he was encouraged to enact a new decree, a new law that we read about in verses 16 through 22. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials. And there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Now, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The response seems a little bit over the top, doesn't it? When you, when you think about it, I mean, the, the, the king's wife says no, and they come up with a law that basically involves every other woman throughout the entire empire. It, it makes you wonder if Mamukin wasn't having marital problems. You know, that he is thinking about himself. He's, he's fearful. He's fearful that when the word gets out that there's going to be a mass rebellion of women. They're going to be marching in the streets. I mean, he's thinking, this is bad. This is really bad. Got to do something about it. You know, the English Standard Version says that there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. 
And if you don't like that, the new international version, the NIV 84 says, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. Got to nip this in the bud, O king. Can't have any of that. And although I don't rarely uh, quote from the message, I couldn't resist this morning. Verse 18 says, the day the wives of the Persian and Mede officials get wind of the queen's insolence, they'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? Wow. So these so-called men get together They enact a new law that could never be revoked. And they believe, (laughs) they believe that this is going to ensure that their wives are going to honor them. (laughs) I mean, that's that's humorous. And, And fellas, in case you haven't figured it out yet, you can't legislate respect. You you can't demand it. There's only one way to get it, and that's to earn it. And the best way to do that is to treat them as you want to be treated. Love them as Christ loves them. But these guys don't get it. They, that's, that's not where they, where they live. And, and so the king, who has already made one foolish mistake in ordering the queen to come to him so he can put her on display, here makes another and enacts the law. And I think another important lesson that we can take from this is is simply this. Be careful of who you ask for advice. Do not ask people who will tell you what you want to hear. Ask people who will tell you what you need to hear. And ask people who have a track record of giving good advice. Especially advice that is rooted in the teachings of scripture. Because our wisdom is fallible. God's wisdom is not. We can trust it. We can take it to the bank. So in summary, the mighty king of Persia, who seems so great, so powerful at the start of our story, ends up drunk, gives a foolish command to his wife. Then after he is defied and humiliated by his wife, he has a temper tantrum. He issues yet another foolish command. But it is precisely here that we begin to see the providence of God. Look again at verse 19. The second half of verse 19. Do you see it? Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Remember I told you earlier to keep in mind Vashti's disobedience? Here's why. Her decision to disobey the king is what allows Esther to become queen. It is her disobedience and the sin of Ahasuerus and the officials enacting this law that now has opened up the door for for Esther because the queen not only lost her position in, in her, her, her title, but she can never come before the king again. 
Now, keep in mind, Esther has no clue of what's going on in the palace. I mean, it's, it's like we haven't even been introduced to her yet. I mean, this is all, this is backstory. This is telling us what God is doing in the palace among the king and the queen and the officials there. Esther has no clue what's going on. She has no clue how her life is about to change. God is using the sinful actions of the king and his advisors to bring about his purposes. Are you beginning to see the fingerprints of God here? Oh, it gets better. We're just getting started. So as I was thinking about how I would want to to leave you this morning, how I would like to end, I just want to share with you a few lessons. There are many lessons. I've shared some of them already. But I want to leave you with three major lessons from this first chapter in Esther. First, God is God even when people don't acknowledge him as God. He is. It doesn't matter what we, what we think. Remember that, that bumper sticker that was popular many years ago? You know, um, God says it, said it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, it doesn't matter if you believe it. God said it, that settles it. It doesn't matter. God is God even when people don't acknowledge him as God. God is at work in and among believers and unbelievers alike. It's not like God can only use his children. The only people I can work through are people who love me. That would not be a God worth serving. He is at work in the world among nations and kings and presidents as much as he's working in and through the church. Second thing I share with you is that God is not limited by the sinful actions of people. What King Xerxes did was wrong. What Ahasuerus did was wrong. But God is not hamstrung by our sinful actions. He's not put in a straitjacket by our moral failings. You know, oh, I really wanted to do X, Y, and Z over here, but I can't because you sinned. Again, what kind of God is that? It's our failures, our missteps, our mistakes, our sin will not keep God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Now, having said that, you have to understand that there are consequences to sin. That just because God can use the sinful behavior of others doesn't mean that those people who commit sin escape the consequences of sin. So, bringing it a little bit closer to home, has your life ever been touched by foolish decisions made by others? I would think most of us would have to say yes. Or how about this? Have you ever felt discouraged or defeated because of wrong choices that you've made? If you're like me, you have to say, yeah. I've made a ton of wrong choices. I've made foolish decisions. And yes, I have reaped some of the consequences, not all the consequences. Sometimes God is merciful. But, but I think we've all been there. 
But as we think about the world in which we live today, we think about corona. We think about the economic downturn. We, we think about the struggles that we're facing now. It is so easy to think that God has, has taken a vacation. God, where are you in the midst of my pain and my suffering? Why am I going through this? Why did my husband leave me? Why are my kids doing drugs? Why have we lost our financial nest egg? Why have I lost my job? There are many of us that are going through difficulty right now. And we can be tempted to think that, that God doesn't know what's going on. Or that if he does know what's going on, he doesn't care about what's going on. He doesn't, doesn't care about what's going on in my life. That's not true. And I think as we progress through the story in Esther, you're going to find out that God is intricately involved in our lives, orchestrating the events of our lives and things, working in godless people to bring about his will. So sin, whether it be ours or somebody else's, it will never put God in a straitjacket. The third thing to share with you is that just simply God is in control. It's related to the first two, but God is in control. His hand may be invisible to our eyes, but he is always at work behind the scenes orchestrating his divine will for his glory and our good. Leave you with a few verses to think about. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in his hand. He turns it wherever he wills. Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things, says Job, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And the apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, the coronavirus, the social unrest that we're experiencing now didn't take God by surprise. In fact, he is working in it and through it and through people like you and me who are willing to risk it all for God's glory and for the good of others. God is in control, and he will accomplish amazing, amazing things through those who are willing to risk it all. If uh, you're here this morning or watching online and you'd like to dive in deeper into the study of the book of Esther, we invite you um, to join a life group. Uh, for those of you that are worshiping here live in person, uh, stop back at the hub afterwards and talk with somebody about how you can get plugged in to a life group. We'd love to have you join in on the conversation and process this amazing book together. And then I hope you will all Join us back next week when I introduce you to the new Miss Persia. Let's pray together. 
Father, thank you for our time together this morning, and thank you for your word and for this, this book of Esther that is so rich and has so much to teach us. Lord God, I pray that you would take the truths that we are only now beginning to scratch the surface of and, and that you would just rivet it to our hearts. Lord, cause us to be a people who truly trust you, who truly believe that you are in control, that you are the sovereign Lord over all. And Lord, would you give us that peace that passes all understanding, that even though we may not understand what you are doing, we know that you are at work. And that, Lord, that you want to do amazing things through us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.